This is Dr. Michael Bricky with Ageless Lifestyles, cutting-edge thinking for being youthful at every age. On each program, I interview experts on what it takes to live longer, healthier, and happier. Your husband dies, and you discover his 401k beneficiary is his ex-wife because he forgot to update it. You had hundreds of thousands of dollars in your company stock, so your retirement is all set, except it was Enron stock. Not good planning. Today's show is Retirement and Financial Planning and Pitfalls with Mark Singer. Mark is a certified financial planner, certified financial educator, and author of the new book, The Changing Landscape of Retirement. Mark, welcome. Good morning, Mike. How are you doing? Oh, just fine. The beneficiary problem, I gather, is uh, not uncommon. Well, it's interesting. I recall many years ago, we had a fellow who had worked for GE for 35 years, was about to retire, came into my office, and we were chit-chatting, and I got all of, his, all of his information. And I turned around to him, and I said, you know what, John? I could get you 15% on your investments for the rest of your life, and your planning would blow up. And he looks at me and goes, what? He says, yeah, I could, I could accumulate all this money for you, but when you die, your ex-wife is still the beneficiary of your 401k plan. I'm not sure that's what your plan was supposed to be. What happens is the beneficiary designations, once they get set up, when things change in your life, you rarely go back to changing beneficiary designations and we've seen more often than not you know aunt molly passed away 12 years ago the ex-wife is the beneficiary on the ira we find that from an investment perspective the number one thing believe it or not that you should be looking at now before you even look at the investments are the beneficiary designations and those should be just like with estate planning you should review those beneficiary designations probably every three to five years so to make sure that you have both the primary and the contingent designations set properly. So this is not only retirement accounts, but it would be wills, it would be life insurance, it would be bank accounts with the payable on death designations? Well, the beneficiaries that can be designated are pretty much within the retirement vehicle community. In other words, and it is, it's, it's a good question to be raised, for those accounts that, let's say, you have with your wife or that are, you know, the taxable checking account you do, or, the, or the TOD accounts, you do not actually designate beneficiaries. They are actually transferred within the designations within the will. However, for retirement accounts, IRAs, 401Ks, 403Bs, annuities, those actually ask for beneficiary designations. And it's once you pass, then they will pass directly to that beneficiary designation. Now, one of the issues that we find with some of our clients Let's say, for example, Mike, that you want to leave your $100,000 IRA to your wife, 
but in your will, you designate it that it's going to go to some other person, a child. So right now, we're sitting with two conflicting instructions. Mm -hmm. The IRA says you want it to go to your wife. The will says you want it to go to, let's say, your child. The prevailing instruction will come from the IRA. So you need to make sure that, particularly with retirement beneficiary designations, that your will instructions are in line with what you have set up for your retirement beneficiary designation. So it's important when doing your retirement planning to coordinate all these pieces together. Right. And the reason I mentioned bank accounts was when I was POA for my mother, and when we set those up, we made it uh, so that it's payable to my sister and myself on her death so that it doesn't have to go through probate. Correct. Correct. And oftentimes, you know, and I, I'm, I'm not an attorney, I'm not advocating setting up a trust, but the process of setting up, if you will, a revocable trust does a similar thing that it could be owned by you, you could be the trustee, it would then avoid probate. So there are uh, um, a couple of different solutions to help you if your objective is to avoid probate. We kind of wandered on to IRAs and beneficiaries. Tell us about the non-spousal IRA rollovers and how people often mess that up. So the non-spousal rollover, obviously it means it's being rolled over to somebody who is not your spouse. And uh, one of the stories that we have with a client that goes back probably now about 10 years is that she went to the local bank teller and there was a $500,000 IRA that was owned by her father who had recently passed away. The daughter, now my client now, but not at the time, was told by the bank teller to just roll it into her own IRA, everything would be fine. And then not do anything with it, don't worry, it's just in the IRA. Well, the reality is, that once you a IRA that is going to somebody other than your spouse, that once you roll it over, you must per an IRS actuarial table every year start to take distributions. If you do not, it will be significant penalties. The other mistake that people make, and actually the bank teller had mentioned this to my client, was to have the IRA liquidated, have a check sent to the daughter, the non-spouse, and have the daughter bring in the check for the non-spousal rollover. Well, the problem with that is that the IRS says that once you take the money out of that IRA, if you are a non-spouse, it will be taxed in full. If she had done that, that would have been about a $300,000 irreconcilable mistake. Mm. So the non-spousal rollover is important to understand that it must go trustee-trustee. It must go from IRA to IRA. And then once it is set up, it is typically titled as a BDA, with the uh, beneficiary designation account for the non-spouse. Let's say 
I pass away, my daughter Erica is the beneficiary, it would then roll over directly to Erica's IRA, but it would be termed a BDA account for Erica Singer, and then Erica would have to take out, based on her age, annual distributions. If you do that, you're all set. Anything other than that, if you take a check or if you don't take distributions, then you will owe lots of taxes. People may be thinking, well, of course I would give my IRA to my spouse, but we have a lot of people who are divorced, who are widowed. Now, is it limited to family members, or can you do a IRA rollover to anybody? You can do an IRA rollover to anybody. You are not limited to anything. Actually, if you go on our website at www.yourretirementjourney.com, and it's also listed in the book, Uh, We have seven different worksheets. One of those worksheets is a beneficiary designation worksheet. So if you go on and and download it, it's free, Um, it should prompt you to go and review those designated beneficiaries so that you can make sure that it's going to the right place. Hey, we... Life has changed over time. You may have, when you first started with a company 20, 30 years ago, uh, indicated that, hey, you may not have been married at the time, and you may have said, my mom is going to be the beneficiary. And since then, you've been married. Well, then your spouse is not on as the beneficiary, which was probably going to be your intent, because you didn't change that beneficiary form. Mm Mm-hmm. So just make sure, and I would say as a rule of thumb, every three to five years, just like we sort of tell our clients on the estate planning documents, review the beneficiary designations. Life may have changed. Your objectives may have changed. We've got a couple of clients, Mike, who don't have good relations with their kids. (laughs) So they... One struggles, the other doesn't, with who should then be the contingent beneficiary after the spouse. (laughs) So as life changes, make sure that some of those things that aren't so evident aren't right in front of you, that you attend to them. And one of those would be the beneficiary designation. I'm thinking of these movies where the guy pretends to be deaf and changes his his will several times uh, on the basis of what he heard. And and, uh, these days we have the advantage of word processing, so you can easily change that. Absolutely. And what's interesting is beneficiary designations. One of the concepts that we talk about in the book is called the stretch IRA. It's the opportunity to turn a $100,000 IRA into a $1 million stream of income for you, your spouse, and your child. Now, it doesn't just automatically happen. What you have to do is set up the beneficiary designations properly so that when you pass, your spouse will then take the income for the balance of her life. And when she passes, then your child will then take the remaining income based on the age of his or her life. And if done properly, 
And if you educate everybody, you know, the husband, the spouse, and the child about what you can and cannot do when the previous generation passes away, it is not a difficult thing to, as I say, turn a $100,000 IRA into a million-dollar stream of income over many years, and that concept is called a stretch IRA. It's not a product. It's just properly setting up the beneficiary designations. Now, the stretch IRA, you're not necessarily talking about within a person's lifetime. You're talking about building family wealth over generations. Um, It basically over... So if I had uh, myself, uh, I owned the IRA, and then my wife was the spouse, and my daughter was the contingent beneficiary. Over those three people, you could generate, depending upon, obviously, the return. We use, we use a 7% um, rate of return in terms of a, an assumption and a projection. But if you use a 7% rate of return over that time, and that time could be a, a 60, 70-year period, then you could generate a million dollars of them. Mm-hmm. Mark, when I looked at your book, I said, oh, gee, another financial book. Uh, I, I doubt if there's going to be anything new in it. And what was most unique was what you call looking at things from 20,000 feet. And up close, you know, you turn on the, the TV, you read the, the newspaper, and they say, oh, this is hot stock or buy now or sell now or something. You back up to 10,000 feet, and you have people say, buy and hold quality stocks and overall you're going to get nine to ten percent interest and what blew me away was the chart that you have that said there have been four protracted bear markets once 21 years one was 17 years one was 16 years and currently 11 years and you know if the previous three examples tend to be a good example we may be in this flat bear market for several more years Getting up to the 30,000-foot level is just so important. So I've got clients who come in, and I have people to talk to when I speak, who are so focused on, you know, this month the market lost X, or this quarter the market lost Y. Um, we haven't, you know, uh, gained anything over the past, you know, six months or markets. And that secular bear market is when from point A to point B, there is no return. And we are in the fourth since 1900 secular bear market. Now, I believe that we have, based on a lot of factors, probably another three to five years of being in a very volatile flat market. Now, during the the 16, 17, and 21 years and the current 11 years, it's not that every year is flat. There's a lot of volatility up and down, but from the beginning of the cycle to the end of the cycle, there's no return. The good news is, let's not paint it all bad, the good news is that after each of the three previous secular bear markets, we've had roaring bull markets. Now, we as an industry, I think, have done a poor job of educating the consumer we tell you that you should expect a 10% return over long periods of time in the market. There's two things with that that are very misleading. Over a 100-year period, the market has returned actually the same number, 10%, three times. So when we tell people what to expect, 
and they don't get it, they go, hmm, uh, what are they talking about? The second thing that is very misleading is that depending upon your timing, you may not see 10% returns for long periods of time. So as the we are getting older, and it's almost been a perfect storm, Mike, starting back in 2000, and as the baby boomers are approaching or transitioning into retirement, they have not seen for an 11-year period now any sustainable forward movement in the market. When you say that, is that just the stock price or does that include dividends? That is the total return of the market, which includes the dividends. So it has been a very difficult time. Now, if you add to that, that we just finished up the greatest bull market in the bond markets. We had a 25-year fantastic run in bond markets. They were returning on average mid to high single-digit returns over that period of time. That's historically well over what we would expect. Now we've got interest rates that are historically low, and there's really only one way that these interest rates are going to move, and that is up. Mm -hmm. And when interest rates go up, the value of bonds go down. So we're sitting here in sort of a conundrum from 30,000 feet. We've probably got another three to five years of a stock market that is probably going to go nowhere, yet is going to be very volatile on on short-term trends, and a bond market that could potentially now lose people money if the interest rates go up. So the big question from 30,000 feet is, what do you do? And studies show during secular bear markets like the one that we're in. You mentioned buy and hold. Back in the 80s and the Mm. 90s, you could just go to bed, buy high-quality mutual funds or stocks, and turn around and in a year or two have made a lot of money. doesn't happen now. In these times, you have to invest differently. And there are two areas that you have to include in your portfolios if you are hopeful of adding any value during these times. The first is, instead of just the buy and hold and just go to sleep, you have to be more tactical. Tactical means that you are making more minor adjustments more frequently to portfolios. And the reason you have to do that now is that the swings are very violent and they're very swift. And that if you are even hopeful of making those minor changes to capture some of the ups or downs with the volatility, Tactical investing gives you more of a probability that you can capture some of the ups and potentially buffer yourself from some of the downs. The other area that you need to be investing in is an area called alternative investments. And alternative investments have been around for years and years and years. But until recently, They've only been available to the very high net worth individuals. You needed five, ten, fifteen million dollars. You needed to be a pension fund or some big endowment fund in order to access these managers. And these managers invested in asset categories that were not typically um, ref- 
reflective in a traditional stock or bond portfolio. They invested in categories such as commodities, timber, currency, managed futures. They invested in a way that you typically wouldn't invest in. Typical mutual funds are long only. In other words, they only make money if they go up. But we have long short managers now that um, are also akin to what some of the hedge funds were doing, which you could make money in either an up or down market. So there are about a half a dozen different asset categories that studies show that during these secular bear markets with a healthy allocation to, to alternatives, that you have the potential of adding some value to the portfolio because these alternatives typically don't suffer the downsides that the traditional stocks or bonds do, but also have the opportunity to have some upsides that stocks and bonds may not have during these times. I would think that both the tactical strategies and the alternative investments require even more knowledge, even more trust uh, that you could get burned even more easily. How do people find somebody that they can trust and somebody that's doing it right? Great question. And a lot of our clients bring in their 401k statements. You know, they may have a couple thousand, a couple hundred thousand dollars in their 401k statement. They say, you know, we take a look at them and help them to reallocate it. Unfortunately, in many of the 401k statements, and we work with a couple of, you know, major Fortune 100 companies, the choices are very lacking. In other words, they still are just the traditional large cap, you know, value or large cap growth mutual fund or just the regular high quality bond fund. They are very lacking in terms of offering out the newer types of mutual funds. So within your own 401k, if you manage your monies within that, more often than not, you're not even going to be able to have access to these funds. And more often than not, in order to access those managers, you need to work with a certified, well, a financial planner. And in the book, the fifth chapter, what we do is we outline uh, the questions to ask. And actually on the website, on yourretirementjourney.com, one of the worksheets is a worksheet that tells you how to go about an interview for a financial planner. And it's not unlike, you know, if I had hurt my elbow, I wouldn't want to go to a foot doctor. You really want to get aligned with somebody who is doing and has been doing what can bring solutions to your particular concerns. And what I mean by that is, you know, you may be in the midst of, uh, you may have a couple of kids who are going to go to college. Well, you may want to go to somebody who specializes in college planning. And then within the world of college planning, there are two or three different types of people who, who do college planning, and they make money in different ways. When it comes to retirement, which is my specialty, there are numbers of different types of quote-unquote planners or advisors who offer out their services and say they do retirement planning. But if you go on the website again and pull down that interview to prepare yourself to talk to a financial planner, you will find some of those questions that you need to ask to make sure that the person who is positioning themselves as the college planner or the retirement planner 
actually that they are doing, and they will be able to deliver that type of service for you. And one of the issues I gather is that some of your colleagues have particular products that they're pushing annuities with big commissions. And when I talk to a financial planner and they're pushing a product and they really haven't spent the time to get to know my situation, all the alarms go off and I say run. <laughs> right. Absolutely. And th there's a number of questions there. First of all, find out how the quote-unquote planner gets paid. Find out who the planner works for. So, for instance, if they work for an insurance company, and not to pick out anybody in particular, if it's uh, Sun Life, let's say, they're a big name and, and very well respected. But for the most part, that Sun Life agent will only be able to sell the products that Sun Life has or that Ameriprise has or, or any of the other singular insurance-type companies. So you can expect, you know, and you'd be wrong to expect otherwise, they're going to push that corporation's, that company's product, and they will more than likely make a commission on the sale of that product. Now, I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying you need to understand that before you engage in that relationship. It may be okay with you. Therefore, it's a good relationship for you. That relationship is transaction-oriented. In other words, once the transaction is done, you are probably not going to be uh, in the center of a, you know, a communication or a relationship with an ongoing relationship with the person who sold you that he or she is a salesman. They're going to go on to the next sale. I am biased in this area. I believe that when you want to do long-range planning, you, you should have a guide with you along the way. And that guide should be there to assist you and create solutions for you that are customized for you. And the only way I know how to do that is to be aligned with someone who does not do commissions. Now, we actually charge a fee to do the retirement roadmap, to set up the roadmap, gather the information, develop the priorities and the timelines, and then to come up with unique solutions for each client. So that is a fee for the planning. In addition to that, I, like many of my peers, also charge a fee to manage money. Now, the difference between what we do versus the commission folks is that we don't make commissions on the money. So when things are changed, there's no cost to changing in or out, that we don't just call you to say, oh, we just heard of this new investment. I can make more money. Therefore, I'm going to have you, my client, make the change. My clients know, and people who do business like me know, that when we reach out proactively to our clients, it is because it is in the client's best interest. So we are very proactive in terms of keeping in touch with the client when headlines hit. Uh, for instance, in July when we had the debt ceiling conversation, we had two or three emails out to all of our clients telling them what was going on, 
interpreting for them in hopefully lay terms what to expect and what the impact we thought would be on their portfolios. Because we're in it for the long run. Mm -hmm. We are their guide. So it's very important, and again, I, I go back to it's in our book, it's on the website, how to properly interview for a relationship that will hopefully be the best relationship you ever have. I was at a, uh, Mike, I was at a conference about uh, two weeks ago. I was one of 10 financial planners nationwide who were asked to come to the offices in Boston for Wellington Management. Wellington is one of the finest worldwide institutional investment managers. And we were talking, both their account managers and the 10 of us, the financial planners. And we all said it. Our clients tell us things that nobody else <laughs> knows. The priest, the rabbi doesn't know. The family certainly doesn't know. Oftentimes the best friends don't know. But they come in here and we truly take a temperature of the entire person, what they're looking for, what keeps them up at night, what their passions and joys and hobbies are. And therefore, given all that information, we can create that retirement roadmap that is so crucial to their success along the retirement journey. We're talking with Mark Singer, who's a certified financial planner and certified financial educator in the Boston area and author of The Changing Landscape of Retirement, which is frankly an easy read, but has some very good information, an inexpensive book at just fourteen ninety five. And Mark, you also host two radio programs in Boston. I've been doing radio for and TV for almost 20 years. Uh, they tell me I have a good face for radio, so I probably <laughs> stick there. I find it fascinating. I, I love to um, pose the questions. I love to gather information. For me, it's a lot of fun. I have had several. Well, I've had one TV show. I had it for seven years, and my last guest came up to me after the show, and he said, Mark, wh where were you going with those questions? And I said, Mike, I don't know. Maybe it's time I stop. I lost focus. My goal is always to add value to the listeners, as you do with yours, and to try to bring on guests that will be provocative enough, be compelling enough, be timely enough to add value to the people who are listening to the show. So if, if somebody just has to get more of you, going to yourretirementjourney.com, they could probably find out how to stream the uh, radio programs? Yes, and on yourretirementjourney.com, we have all sorts of tools. We, we try to make the website a real value add for those who had bought the book or those in public. One of the chapters we have is just financial planning for women. About a third of our clients are women who are in transition, uh, divorced or widowed. And if you think about it, retirement planning, which is where you've worked somewhere for maybe 30 or 40 years, and now you have to set up for a new chapter in your life, is really not very different than for a woman who is transitioning through a widow, as a result of being widowed or divorced. One of the reasons why we've been so successful in the area of dealing with women in transition is that most of my peers tend to just go right after the money. <laughs> they, they look to, you know, that's how they get paid. If we, if we can manage the money, then we can get paid. But again, as I said before, 
we actually charge a fee to do the planning and to set up for the roadmap. So we can take time, whether it's six months or two or three years, for her to get settled. We try not to touch the money until she figures out what it is that she needs to do. And on the website, we put a five-step program for women to help them take control of their financial affairs. We have a retirement roadmap calculator and a retirement roadmap tool that if you go on, you can actually punch in some of those numbers. How much do I have? How much will I save? How much you know, do I think the returns will be? Therefore, at what age will I have accumulated a nest egg, and will it be enough? You know, I find that too many people are just not doing the planning, Mike. You and I give similar advice to people who are newly divorced or widowed, namely, don't make any major commitments for a year. That, that is, you know, it, it's interesting. I have a client, she's now been with me for about two years. She, her husband had passed away seven or eight years prior to that. She had been involuntarily retired, and I emphasize the involuntary nature of it because that's very different than a voluntary retirement. Mm -hmm. She's actually being told to leave. And at the same time, she was losing her eyesight. So here's a woman who her whole world is turning upside down. She's losing control. And she was referred to us. And I spent probably six months with her. And then face-to-face, we probably had five or six hours together talking. What is it that she wanted to do? Where was the family? Um, What were the issues she was dealing with with her family? Uh, What would she like to do for herself? How would she like to create the rest of her life? She, it was interesting, she actually was looking, I'm in the Boston area, and she had spent a, a lot of her life up in Portland, Maine. So we talked about, well, what's the potential of moving up to Portland? So she actually went up there. She had her daughter bring her up to Portland, and they spent a little time up there. And then she and I conversed after that, and we had a phenomenal conversation. And what she realized was she was actually trying to recreate her early years by going back up to Portland and reconnecting with her life that she had before. Mm -hmm. But that's not where she is now. So it didn't work for her. So we found her a place very local where it would accommodate her physical challenges now with, with losing the eyesight that was near her family. And then once she got settled, then we decided to touch the money. It's a key thing. Our industry really doesn't do a very good job in general of dealing with women per se. We are a male-dominated industry who tend to talk down to women, who talk about stocks and bonds. We don't, as a rule, step back and do what is absolutely necessary to develop a long-term relationship with the women, which is to listen and to hear what they're saying. And oftentimes what they're saying is exactly what they exactly mean. (laughs) So I've said, you know, over my 20 years, you know, half of my role is psychiatrist and half my role is financial planner. And we have to listen more intensely to her to make sure that we're on the same page than we often do to him. And on the website, 
again, we've got resources for the women, and we've got the step program. We've got the ret- we've got uh, the beneficiary designation page. We've got a, a, a worksheet which deals with cash flow, because Mike, you and I know what really drives a successful retirement is having enough cash. It's not having. 50000 or 500000 or $5 million in the portfolio. Obviously, we'd want more than less. But what really generates one's sense of peace of mind is making sure that they have enough cash flow. So the question becomes, do you know what you need to generate the proper amount of cash? Okay, before we go there, by the way, I, I hope you're 50% psychologist rather than psychiatrist because psychiatrists these days are focused on medication rather than <laughs> no medication than, than counseling. I was fascinated that uh, you said men's goals are different than women's goals. So I, I do a lot of speaking. When, when, when you're talking about men wanting to win the game and women wanting a route to security and meeting the family needs. Yep. And let's take it from a very uh, an easy one. We talk about estate planning when I go out and speak, and we talk to the audience, and we go, well, what the men want to do with estate planning is take care of their wife. What the women want to do with estate planning is take care of their kids. So right from the get-go, we have a, a difference in the way that we think about things. The women also, men and women, pink and blue, uh, Mars and Venus, the men feel like we can go out and solve the problem. We're going to go out and we're going to have that checklist. We're, we'll, we'll make sure that, you know, we bring in the money, that, that, that everything's going to be okay. Whether or not that truly works out is a completely different story, but that's how we as a rule go about our lives. Women, on the other hand, and it's a phrase that we use in the industry, and I've had many of my clients confirm that that's how they feel. They don't want to become a bag lady. And the concept behind that is that they may not feel that they can go out and generate the income that is necessary and that all of their assets will be depleted by taking income they're going to need and end up without any financial resources. So a, a, a great part of the process of financial planning, either with a couple or with the women, is to do an outstanding job of educating her in terms of how she needs to think about taking control. It doesn't mean that she necessarily has to understand the ins and outs of pro formers or find, you know, financial statements or you know, asset allocation, per se. It just means that we have to give her enough information so that she feels like she has some control over where she is now and where she's headed. You were <clears throat> starting to go into having enough cash and one of the uh, things that struck me in, in your advice in the changing landscape of retirement was that currently we have an inflation rate of 2 2.5% of destined to uh, to shoot up. And historically, it's been 4 to 4.5%. And if people do their planning on the basis of current inflation rates, they're likely to get burned. Absolutely. And I think you know it's important to bring that up. 
So there are people out there who, there are a lot of people who are do-it-yourselfers. You know, they, there are a lot of tools and resources on the website. They can go in and punch in various assumptions into boilerplate roadmaps, if you will. And they can say, oh, I've got, you know, $500,000, and I'm, I expect a 12% rate of return, and inflation's going to be 2%. Well, the 2% number, let's say you're 60 years old, will compound over a 30, year, 30 to 35-year period, because you should really plan for, you know, 90 to 95 to live. If you are compounding a number that is low, historically low, like 2%, your plan is going to blow up. I believe that you should plan for the historically correct amount, which, depending upon who you read, it's somewhere between the 4 and 4 to 4.3% number over long periods of time. If you do put in for an inflation rate that is higher than where we are right now, in essence what you're doing is putting in a buffer, a margin for error. In my planning with my clients, for instance, we just had somebody in the office just the other day. He's going to retire in four years. In their planning, in their retirement roadmap, the assumptions that we made were that he was going to get a 0% return over the next four years, and he would only get a 6% average annualized return for the 25 years after that. And we put in a 4% inflation rate. Now, let's go back to reality check. And it may, it, it may be possible we may get a 0% return over the next four years if the secular bear market continues. So I think that could be realistic. But after that time frame, again, history shows us there should be significant returns. I think 6% is a very conservative number over the next 20 or 25 years. So again, therein, we build a buffer, a margin for error. And we put in for a 4% inflation rate, which, again, is much higher than where we are right now. It would be a disaster if we counseled a client to retire because we made the picture pretty but not realistic. If we put in for a 2% return, a 2% inflation rate and a 10 or 12% return, it would make for very pretty numbers, but would, it would be an unrealistic roadmap to stay on. And once that person retired, it would blow up at some point, and that would be a disaster. So when doing your, if you're, if you're a do-it-yourself, if you're working with a planner, make sure that the assumptions that you put in are realistic slash conservative so that instead of trying to reach some great number and making the numbers look pretty now, be more conservative with the numbers and make sure that if the worst-case scenario is all you do is hit the conservative numbers, you're able to retire. If I understood correctly, you said kind of a rule of thumb is that a 4% withdrawal rate of retirement savings will usually let you maintain your assets. So I gather that's figuring 4% for inflation and maybe an 8% return rate lets you withdraw 4%. That is correct. And the 4% number, it's not a it's not the interest rate. It's not a yield. It's not a dividend. The number one thing you need to be aware of is, how much cash do I need? Once you figure out how much cash you need, then figure out how much is coming in. 
Are you getting Social Security? Are you getting a pension? And if after figuring out what the Social Security and the pension are, you're still short for the amount that you need, then you're going to need to generate some money from the portfolio. Do not take more than 4% from the portfolio. That's, that number seems to be reaffirmed every survey, every study that I see within our industry that you should not be taking out more than 4%. The 4% means that if over the long period of time you take out no more than 4% and then you account for that 3 to 4% inflation rate, that over long periods of time we should be able to generate an 8 to 9% rate of return. That may sound like absolute nirvana right now. It may sound ridiculous because we haven't had any returns over the past 11 years. But we're talking over long periods of time. If you are taking income now, however, in a market that is flat or losing money, it's a problem. And it's a conversation that we're having with our clients on an ongoing basis. Because if you take 4% out and the market, let's say, one year loses 4 or 5%, then you've actually lost 8 or 9% of the portfolio. It's a double whammy. So during these times, it's crucially important to go back to your guide, go back to your certified financial planner, to really hone down on what cash flow I truly, truly need to take from the investment portfolio. Maybe during these times, maybe there are some line items you can pare down knowing that in maybe three or four years we can you know, go and do some extra traveling. But maybe that extra trip you want to take this year or that extra purchase you want to make next year, if it's possible to defer and if your roadmap indicates it might be a problem if you do it, then you really need to have that conversation with your planner. And again, Mike, getting back to 30,000 feet, that's why, to me, there's nothing more important than having your own retirement roadmap. Because you can literally take the mystery out of the decision-making process. Should I be taking that $20,000 trip? Should I be adding the addition to the house? Well, the question really is, if I spend the money now, will it be there tomorrow? And if you do the roadmap and you input those numbers now before you make those decisions, you will find out what the impact of spending that money will be on the rest of your retirement. Let me go back to that flat bear market and ask you the million-dollar question. You said we'll probably have three or four years of it being flat. How do you know when it's starting to change to a, a bull market and you switch your strategy out of tactical and alternative back to maybe a buy and hold? Mike, that is a great question. So again, I was at Wellington a couple, three weeks ago and we're looking at the chart. And the chart shows from 2000 through 2011 that we've had a flat market. Yet Wellington did not start to overweight their alternative category till 2007, 2008. Well, we know that in studies show us that during these you know flat markets, we should be overweighting alternatives. So my question I posed to them was, you know, hey, listen, we're in this 11-year secular bear market. Why didn't you overweight the alternatives earlier? Why did it take seven to eight years into the cycle? And their answer was no different than anybody else's answer. You really don't truly, truly know you're in this secular bear market till you look backwards. I, so then I posed 
the question you just asked me to them. So in three or four years, you know, let's assume we hope that we're getting out of this. Are there headlines? Are there indications that would help us to anticipate when this cycle is going to be turning? And their answer was, you cannot tell. In essence, when we string together two, three, or four years, then you'll know you're out. So when it comes to changing your investment style, which is the question, you can't, there's no corner to be turned and then say, okay, when you hit this marker, then we're going to change. You do it over time. But you have to continually maintain and monitor what is happening with the portfolios. Do your research to find out what's happening worldwide, what others are doing, to make sure that you're utilizing the most current investment strategies and solutions that you can in order to get the most value of the markets that you're in. So probably two to three years of a bull market would tell you that you're probably going to get several more. Well, you hope so. However, wasn't necessarily the case. If you recall, 2002, 3, and 4, we had tremendous markets. We had a three-year nice run that was all taken back again. So it's not always the case. Even in these secular bear markets where from point A to point B it's flat, there can be what they call cyclical bull markets. 2009 was a perfect example of that. After the disaster of 2008, 2009 was up 20-something percent. Most people didn't experience that because they took their money out after 2008, and they were never in for 2009, which is another lesson. Mm -hmm. But some are projecting that 2012 is going to be a tough year with all that's happening internationally, and that 2013 will be a tremendous year. But just because we have a tremendous year in 2013, we hope, doesn't necessarily mean that it's turning the corner on the secular bear market. Okay. We're talking with Mark Singer, a certified financial planner and author of The Changing Landscape of Retirement. The website is yourretirementjourney.com. And most of those tools that Mark was talking about are in the section of the website called Interactive Worksheets. Mark, fascinating seeing things at 30,000 feet, and I think you have some just superb advice. Well, I appreciate having the opportunity to talk with you. I hope that, you know, I think if there's one takeaway off of all of this, and we've, we've certainly put out a lot of information, I think that more people spend more time planning for their trip to Disney World mm -hmm. than they do planning for their retirement. And if you just step back or step up to 30,000 feet and take the same type of thought process to creating that wonderful vacation that's going to create lots of memories for you and your family and go sit down and I truly believe you have to do it with a professional coordinate all the various pieces put together your retirement roadmap then you will understand exactly what you need to do in order to pursue a successful retirement well you know why we spend more time planning the Disney vacation we don't have to stand in line for two hours to talk to a financial planner. <laughs> this is true. However, go as I did, I bought the book to find out, well, on Tuesday at 3 o'clock, you're supposed to be on this ride, and then Thursday at mm. 9 in the morning, you'll be on this one. So again, if you do the research, you may be able to avoid the lines. 
Disney timing, huh? Yep. <laughs> Mark, thanks so much. Thank you, Mike. Commentary. I thought there wasn't much I hadn't read about the basics of retirement finances, but Mark Singer opened my eyes with his 30,000 feet perspectives. I had subscribed to the conventional buy and hold quality stocks philosophy. I didn't realize there were blocks of many years in which the market has been flat. We've had 21 years, 17 years, 16 years, and our current 11 years and continuing to be flat. Mark's philosophy is buy and hold works well during a bull market, but gives flat returns in a flat market. He believes a flat market calls for tactical and alternative investments. The challenge is that tactical and alternative investments require more knowledge, closer monitoring, and more risk. Thus, it almost requires a professional investor. Mark's advice on checking beneficiaries and being careful about IRA rollovers, especially non-spousal rollovers, can prevent a world of hurt. His rule of thumb for how much to withdraw from retirement savings is to average not more than 4% a year. With an 8% average return, that gives 4% for income and 4% for inflation. I also was fascinated how men and women have different investment psychologies with men wanting to win the game and take care of their wives, and women wanting family security, taking care of their kids, and making sure they don't become a bag lady, the little old ladies who live on the street and have all their possessions in a shopping bag. You are listening to Ageless Lifestyles on webtalkradio.net and permanently archived on agelesslifestyles.com. For information on my books, Defy Aging and 52 Baby Steps to Grow Young, my anti-aging hypnosis CDs, personal coaching, and my keynote and seminar services, just go to notaging.com or drbricky.com. That's D-R-B-R-I-C-K-E-Y.com. I'd love to hear your comments and suggestions. Send them to radio at agelesslifestyles.com. This is your anti-aging psychologist, Dr. Michael Bricky, thanking you for joining us on our quest to live longer, healthier, and happier.